My name is Julene Jackson. I'm with, with Moms for America, where we believe that liberty begins at home. And when we gather together on Thursday evenings, we're not only Moms for America, but we are Families for America. When mom and dad and grandma and grandpa revere the Constitution and our founding fathers and understand the principles of liberty and freedom and the miracles and stories of America, so will your children and so will your grandchildren. So welcome so much as we study the 5,000 year leap, this wonderful class that under these principles of liberty and freedom embedded in the Constitution in 1787, when that document was written, we literally took a 5,000 year leap going from the horse and the plow and the ox and the cart to get around to literally putting a man on the moon under within 200 years of the constitution being written. And we study these great 28 ideas, these ingredients, these principles that allowed our, our nation to do that and really open up the floodgates of freedom and human ingenuity and creativity that sparked a revolution, so to speak, around the world. So Al and I are in Maui with all of our children. We've been here since Monday. It's so much fun, but you know, still even in Maui, we're in pursuit of knowledge and faith and freedom and, and liberty. Um, it is 3.30 our time here. Normally we would come to you at 9.30, but we are six hours behind the East Coast time. And so it's kind of fun to be a little more alive in Berkey when we teach our classes. So this is the first Thursday of May, which in the 1950s, I believe 1952, was made the National Day of Prayer. And so I don't know if you're aware of that. You probably are. And you have been pleading and praying on this day set aside in our nation where the president is required by law to write a proclamation admonishing this nation to pray for families. You've probably been praying for your children, for this country, for its leaders. Ooh, feels so divisive right now that you know, the hearts of Americans will turn to good and to truth. And we can only do this. We can really only find truth uh, and goodness in God and in his revealed word. And boy, the principles we're discussing today, eight, nine, and 10 talks so much about this. So I hope you have your 5,000 year leap student manual that you can get from kimbercurriculum.com. The thing I love about that student manual is you fill in the blanks and it has room to write notes. Now, um, last Saturday, Al and I were in Utah on a speaking assignment and a, a gal that I attended a cottage meeting with over 10 years ago was there. And when we began to meet those little mamas in Utah over 10 years ago, you know, we didn't particularly know anything about the constitution or even our history, but we started with the 5,000 year leap and we had the student manual and we just went through and filled in the blanks and then discussed every couple of paragraphs and we taught one another. And when I saw her on Saturday, she only had three children 10 years ago and now she has seven and she teaches two cottage meeting classes oh, that's a Amanda week, Templeman. yes, yeah. in the evening. And she said, we really study in-depth, Jolene. She teaches the Healing of America seminars and the 5,000 year leap. And she has, they, they teach out of these student editions where you fill in the blank. And she said, 
it takes me twice as long to teach a class that you do online because we go through each sentence line by line and we fill in the blank and they want to discuss and talk about it. And that is where the magic really happens when you have cottage meetings in your home that you can, you can go over this because Al and I just teach kind of an overview. We just kind of teach the, you know, bolded headlines and then give a few points uh, from this material because we usually have larger groups. And so, you know, we move through the material more quickly in 12 weeks or 16 weeks, what would probably really take you, you know, maybe 25 to 30 weeks to go through. And so anyways, because we, because we go through and review the, the principles and not do it line by line, I really, we really encourage you to have a little homework before you come to class to read the principles or at least to review and reread within a 48 hour period of attending the class. So you kind of really lock in the ideas and principles that you were taught. Now, I hope at this point, you all have your handy dandy 100 bookmarks for $5. You can get 100 bookmarks from the National Center for Constitutional Studies. And this will help you, because here's all the principles on the back of that bookmark, it will help you to lock in and to memorize these principles. So we were talking to a little gal that we met up in uh, Los Angeles on Saturday. We flew to Los Angeles uh, just for a day. And um, she's like a daughter uh, to us, Fran, oh, Fran, from another mother. She's clerking for a federal judge and she did dinner with us. And she said, and she just moved to California from Washington, D.C. And she said, gas here is $6 in California. And we saw it when we were there on Saturday. And she said, you know, since COVID, everything is just kind of seeming economically to fall apart with all the shortages and the increase in gas and prices and housing and everything. And she said, you know, I'm starting to hear people blame everything on Putin for the shortages and the increases. And she said, and then we began to talk about, you know, leaders and how can we really trust leaders? And, uh, you know, she doesn't necessarily trust mainstream media or, you know, the Ukrainian government, but how do we, how do we know, you know? And, and we had this discussion about virtuous leaders. And, you know, when you have morally based leaders, they just instinctively know that they lead under godly law. And that's how you have strong government. And that's how you lead and maintain good relations with other nations and with your people. And, and you know, the only way that you can do that is if people, <laughs> you know, remain godly, because then they'll want to put in godly leaders that will lead uh, according to God's law. And how do you have godly people and godly leaders? So as we were talking, you know, because we were trying to find what's the solution? Why are we in this predicament that we are? And I said, you know, you have to have religion in a society. There has to be a moral code of right and wrong. And you have to acknowledge that, you know, the creator of, of this expanse of humanity you know, uh, knows what's best for his children. And, and then we have to be responsible to, you know, to the Supreme Creator. And, and that's where the solutions lie. So as we had this discussion at the dinner table, whether she knew it or not, I wove in five principles. Those are the first five principles of the 5,000 year leap. So this is the power of these principles that when you're having discussions with people and you're talking about the state of affairs, 
you can weave in, well, this is the solution. This is why we're in the predicament and this is the solution. Mm -hmm. And it's an empowering and it's an elevating experience when you can weave in principles as people are talking about the problems of this day. So the principles that we're gonna be discussing today, principles eight, nine, and 10 are so applicable to what is going on right now with that leaked opinion draft from the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and how that was, we've never seen this in the history of the courts, a leaked uh, draft. And no doubt it was done to incite fury and chaos and apply pressure to the justices. And boy, it's, we're feeling such divisions and we're all talking about this issue right now. And these principles are gonna be really profound in helping you to elevate the discussion around what is going on right now in our nation. So Al's gonna take it away with the eighth principle. Good, thank you, thank you, Jelini. So we're gonna talk about the eighth principle, which is men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And so as Jelene highlighted, the topic of rights is front and center in public discourse now because of what's happened and the Supreme Court. So as I indicated in the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these rights come from our creator. So it's all according to his law. So now we're arguing in the, in the public discourse now about civil rights and inalienable rights. And you know, one side sees rights as I get to do whatever I want, irrespective of the creator. And the other side is saying, well, no, you don't. We actually have God's law that we need to live by and adhere to. So the Declaration of Independence recognized the endowment of inalienable rights by a creator upon mankind. So what does inalienable mean? Sometimes it's spelled inalienable, but I have it here unalienable. What does that mean? What exactly is a right? And how can we know what our rights are? So let's talk about the meaning of unalienable. So when you look at the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, if you don't have that as part of your I Love America library, I would recommend that you try your level best to get an 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Maybe Maria can find the link and maybe put it in the chat. But the definition, because those definitions are basically what the founders use because words have changed their meaning over time, which has been done by design. And I've, I've heard that if you can change five words every year, you can change the course and direction of our country away from self-government and a Republican form of government to a socialistic government, if you can change the meaning of words. And so when you go back to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, not alienable, that cannot be alienated, that may not be transferred as an alienable rights. Kind of confusing. When you jump down to the last part there, it says unalienable means that something cannot be transferred or violated by force, favor, neglect, or any other arrangement. These are rights that come to you from God. 
And it's your behavior that forces you, not forces you, but inevitably means that you give up those rights and they can be taken and given by the creator. And that's God. So when you look at inalienable rights, they are the category of rights that, not can, that cannot be infringed without the violator coming under the judgment of God. These rights are unalienable because as God granted them, only he can take them away. So then in our manual, it highlights a list of inalienable rights because the founders only highlighted life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So one of the rights that they did highlight, what's in our manual, is that we have certain other rights that are called vested. And these are rights which are created by the community, state, or nation for our protection or well-being. However, they can be changed at any time if the lawmakers feel like that, feel as though they should be changed. So an example of, invested, of a vested right might be the right to go hunting during certain seasons or the right to travel on a public highway. Note that the government can change both of these rights or prohibit them altogether. The region could be declared off, re off limits for hunting or a highway could be closed. So those are our vested rights that come that are involved with the government. But here are some unalienable rights that are listed and you can find them in the first five books of Moses in the Old Testament. And these are some that the founders did not include, but these are rights that we have that come from God. The right of self-government, the right to bear arms for self-defense, the right to choose a profession, the right to choose a mate, the right to enjoy the fruits of one's labor. Julie and I were just talking about that just a few minutes ago. It's hard to enjoy the fruits of one's labors if the government is taking half of what you earn the right to privacy. And a lot of these that are listed here are also highlighted in the Bill of Rights, which is a prohibition against what the federal government cannot do. So when it, when it talks about that Congress shall make no law, those are prohibitions on the federal government. God is perfectly just, which means after giving us a commandment, he gives us the right to do anything that is necessary and proper in order to keep his commandments. That means that every right is associated with the commandment. When God gives a commandment, we know that we have the inalienable right to keep that commandment and do anything that is necessary and proper in order to be obedient. So what do I mean by that? So the Lord commands us, commanded Adam and Eve to multiply and replenish the earth. So the inalienable right associated with that commandment is, yes, the right to choose a mate. mate according to his law. The Lord commands us also to pay tithing. And what is the inalienable right associated with that? The right to own, develop, and dispose of property. Pay tithing on the property that you own. And then we've got these inalienable, what I like to call inalienable wrongs. This whole notion of rights to do whatever you want to do. The right to life is being attacked in the public discourse today. And we were listening to a podcast the other day, Jelena and I were, and there have been 60 million abortions since 1973. Half of that number 
are black babies. 30 million black babies since 1973 have been aborted. There are only seven countries that allow abortions after 20 weeks. And we're one of them. And we're in good company with North Korea and China. And we know what kind of government they run. So then you've got this whole notion of what's happening in the Supreme Court in this draft decision, all the lies that are associated with what the, what the court hopefully will do, which will be able to return the decision of abortion back to the states where, they, where it belongs to begin with, where the states have the right to decide their own standards of morality, decency, and safety. So it's not going to end abortion for those who are screaming that it is. It basically takes it from a federal issue down to a state issue. Anything you want to say about that before I move so, on? So what would you say if people said, oh, well, in, we have an inalienable right to choose who we want to marry. So therefore, I want if I'm a man and I want to marry a man, that's my inalienable right. What would that, you be your that, rebuttal? I would say, well, that, sir, is an inalienable wrong because that a right to do something that's immoral, immoral is not an inalienable right. It goes back to what we talked about, that inalienable right gives you what is necessary and proper to keep the commandments of the Lord. The Constitution was built on Judeo-Christian principles, and God is in charge. And so every law, everything that we do helps us, the Constitution helps us be able to choose the Lord and to keep his law. Okay. So same-sex marriage is not a, a God-given right because it does not help you to keep the commandments of God. Yeah, okay. Right. okay. Because as you read divine law, it says marriage is between a man and a woman. So when people say, I have a right to do such and such, well, you can measure it against what is revealed in divine law you know, the revealed divine law, which is contained in the scriptures. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Let me finish up with rights. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. sorry. Definition of rights, West, 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Just claim, immunity, privilege, legal title, ownership, just claim by sovereignty. A right is a legitimate moral or legal claim to a privilege of having something or the opportunity to do something. So let's quickly summarize. Inalienable rights are rights that cannot be infringed without incurring the justice of God. Inalienable rights come from God, not the government. All legitimate vested rights are founded upon inalienable rights. Rights can be identified in scripture and are associated with God's commandment. And I think the most important thing I want to highlight here is we have the inalienable right to do anything that is necessary and proper in order to keep God's commandments. And that last one said property rights make it possible to have inalienable rights. So let's just look at that last little part of principle eight. Property rights are essential to the pursuit of happiness. Now, some scholars might wonder, what did Jefferson mean when he put that in the Declaration of Independence? The meaning of that phrase was well understood in that time. Some people will say that you know, Jefferson was sensitive to the issue of slavery. So he didn't want to enshrine slavery by saying property, right, meaning exactly. maybe, maybe the South would have implied slaves right. were a part of property. Right. So he- That was actually Ben Franklin who made that suggestion. To, to remove 
to, to change it to pursuit of happiness as, and, as opposed to property. Okay. Because it originally said property. Yeah, like right. And, and all the, all the, you know, enlightened thinkers of, of their time said the three natural rights, the one of them was property. So they all understood this pursuit of happiness was another way of saying the right to be able to own your labor, to own your stuff, to own your property without it being confiscated. And John Adams puts it very clearly when he says all men are born free and independent and have certain natural, essential and inalienable rights amongst which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and their liberties and that of acquiring and possessing and protecting their property, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. So you can see how they could pull the pursuit of happiness is the means of being able to acquire, possess and protect that which you've worked so hard to acquire. And um, Blackstone, uh, a contemporary of the founders really who uh, you, you know, was um, started the first law school in Oxford, lived from 1723 to 1780, talks about three, the three great natural rights as well. Uh, um, he said they are the three primary, primary principal rights of um, personal security, the right of personal liberty and a private property. And this life and liberty are only secure as long to, as the right to property is secure is the 14th principle, which we will talk about uh, in two weeks. And, and this idea of, of an inalienable right being able to own your property was, was instituted into state constitutions. Um, in Pennsylvania, it talks about life and liberty and acquiring and possessing your property. And so this idea that that was a part of it, God-given right to own the things that you work so hard for. And Frederick Bastiat, who wrote that wonderful book, oh, The yeah. Law, that small little book, uh, who was a French writer and, and studied, you know, Adam Smith's free market principles in the in the Bastiat um, book, The Law. And there's a the, the Tuttle Twins, you know, those children books that kind of take complicated ideas and put them in really cute illustrated. They actually have the law, Tuttle Twin. So I would recommend getting that book first, becoming familiar with that, the, those ideas, and, and then to read Bastiat's book, right. which is we quite- We know the author, Connor Boyack. Yeah. He actually, Connor runs Libertas Institute in Utah. And he's one, he's one of the first people I went to go see to when I ran for office to get uh, his support. Yeah. Smart when Al ran for the state senate in really Utah. So those total Tuttle Twins we'd recommend. And he has a, a, a book explaining the illustrated version of Bastiat's The Law. Now Bastiat lived, Frederick Bastiat, from 1801 to 1850. And in his book, The Law, he talks about how our private property should be protected under the law, not plundered. We shouldn't be able to plunder other people's properties or acquire or take away life, faculties, and production. In other words, he said, individuality, liberty, and property. This is man. And in spite of the cunning, artful political leaders, these three gifts from God precede all other human legislation and are superior to it. So how do we protect these God-given rights uh, from the heavens? Well, the ninth principle tells us to protect our rights, our God-given rights, God has revealed certain principles of divine law, okay? So we weigh what our rights are based on what God has said they are, and they come in the form of re revealed divine law. 
And so it's so interesting right now, so many people are saying, well, government should protect my right to abort uh, a child. But we know that that's simply not a right that you have. I mean, it's a, it's a thou shalt not, thou shalt not kill in the 10 commandments. It's number six. That's not a right that you have to decide when to snuff out life. So according to God, our God-given rights are the thou shalt, and like Al said, are the inalienable wrongs are the thou shalt nots. So any law that goes against our inalienable rights, that, that natural law, that God's law, that our, you know, the order of the universe is founded upon our creator, his laws, any laws that are based against natural law, God's law, Cicero, remember that ancient thinker that our founder studied, he said it would be a scourge to humanity. And a scourge to, to, to humanity to, to, you know, incorporate laws that are contrary to the creator's laws would justify, I think, the heavens to curse and to get to condemn those people. So, you know, revealed divine law is not what the Supreme Court says or what legislators say. It's what it's God says. And uh, William Blackstone, who was an English defender of common law, he lived from 1723 to 1780, kind of a contemporary of the founders, and they read his writings. He pointed out that the creator is not only omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, but he is of infinite wisdom, and he has laid down only such laws as were founded in those relations of justice that existed in the nature of things. And he said, these things are eternal and they're immutable laws of good and evil to which the creator himself conforms to. And amongst them are these principles, Blackstone says, that you should live honestly, that you should hurt nobody, viable or unviable, and we should render to everyone what is due. Now, Blackstone said this. And he also said sound principles of law today are based on God's law. It was necessary for God to disclose those laws to man by direct revelation, Blackstone said. Isn't this interesting? Look at this quote here under sound principles of law are based on God's law. Blackstone said the doctrines thus delivered, we call the revealed or divine law, and they are found only in holy scripture, okay? Mm. This is what Blackstone said. These precepts, when revealed, are found, upon, uh, are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature, okay? And they tend, as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity or man's happiness. That's what felicity means, happiness. Isn't that interesting? So there he, said, there he says it. Divine, revealed divine law can only be found in Holy Scripture. So an analysis of the essential elements of God's code of divine law is then designed to promote, preserve, and to protect our inalienable rights, like mm -hmm. Al was saying. I really like that paragraph under here that says this divine pattern of law for human happiness requires a recognition of God's supremacy over all things. And then it gives a really nice little rundown of 
God's commandments, the Ten Commandments. And embedded in there, it says that human life is to be kept sacred. All right. So thou shalt not kill means human life should be kept sacred. It's so interesting. Uh, we have a 27-year-old daughter and a 22-year-old daughter. And we were, we've been talking about this the last few days, how, you know, that leaked um, opinion has, has overturning Roe versus Wade. And everyone is talking about abortion again. And my 22-year-old daughter said, Mom, you know, I, I, I don't believe, I never believed in abortion. Certainly you didn't raise us to believe in abortion. But she said, you know, it's just so crammed down my throat in college, my body, my choice. I just didn't really speak up or out against it. But a few months ago, one of her former roommates got pregnant out of wedlock. And this little girl was going to keep this baby. But, you know, her parents, no one was particularly supportive of her. And so she would come over to our daughter's house every night. And she said, oftentimes, my little friend would just stay the night and we would just sleep together in that bed. And we would talk about what it was going to take, you know, for her to raise this little baby. And she would talk about little names. And my little 22 year old Mary Alice said, I felt the spirit of that little baby as I would, you know, be with my little friend. And, and I felt that baby. She said, I know it might sound crazy to some, but I very much felt that child wanted to live and there was life in, in her tummy. And then one day her friend came home and said that she had aborted the child. And she said, mom, it rocked my world because I knew that child wanted to live. And it was such a, it seemed so casual to me the way she went about it because the little boyfriend, you know, said, maybe I'll stay with you if you abort it. And so she just went in, aborted it, and, and that evening asked Mary Alice, you know, what does she want to eat for dinner, and let's go watch The Bachelor, and Mary Alice could not do that, and she said that changed, that experience changed my life, and she said, now I am so verbal about um, the sanctity of life and how it impacts, you know, that it is, that it is a life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I told the girls today as we were laying out at the pool about a little girlfriend that I had who's a godly woman and she's a mother of many children now but when she was a young girl, um, she uh, got pregnant and she aborted that little baby and no one in the family knew until a few years later, and how that experience has stayed with her and of course you can be forgiven and you can repent and you can change and you can activate the atonement of Jesus Christ to be forgiven and to heal. But those experiences stay with a woman. And isn't it interesting, me and my girls talked about the last few days, how it seems like women are some of the staunchest defenders of the right to abort the very, you know, you know, souls, the women that give life are the, the greatest defenders to accept and to, uh, to be proponents and to to legislate this kind of thing into law and what a scourge to humanity it has been since abortion has been legalized and i i saw something that the obamas put out on instagram a few days ago they actually said according to the 14th amendment you know that that the federal government should, does have a right to protect abortion and i thought wow they really both of them, the Obamas, are, you know, legal uh, graduates. Law school, really <laughs> and I'm like, well, they, don't, they didn't understand the 14th Amendment at all. 
And you need to take our Healing of America seminar. So we really hash out what the 14th Commandment was. But they said that most women who get abortions do not do it casually. And my little daughter said, Mom, it was such a casual thing that my friend decided to do to spur of the moment to go in and abort that baby and to move forward almost like nothing happened. And I thought, yeah, I, I think, I don't think uh, when the Obamas said most women don't do it casually, I think most women probably do. And so, you know, to make a mockery of God's law, right? You know, he, you know, he, the man, the, the God of the universe who created us, who loves us, who understands what brings his children the greatest joy for us to say, no, we know better. It is okay to kill one another when we deem it convenient. That is making a mockery of, of the God and of our God and of natural law. And it, and it will be our undoing because mm-hmm. God will not be mocked. Okay. okay, Al, so you take it on. Thank you. Thank you. So that reminds me of a story when I was a lay minister back when we lived in D.C. And a young woman came to me who became pregnant. And we prayed about it. And she decided to carry that baby the full term and give it up for adoption, which was took a lot of courage on her part. Didn't have a lot of support from home. She was out here in DC by herself, but went through the process and did it and gave that baby to a family, a mom and a dad. And I think still is involved in that kid's life. In fact, she went on to get married to the right guy and have her own family. So it, it does work. So the next principle we have is divine law endows mankind with unalienable duties, which I had not any idea about until we started reading the 5,000 year leap, unalienable duties as well as unalienable rights. So there are two kinds of duties. There's public and private. Public duties relate to public morality and are usually supported by local or state ordinances, which can be enforced by the police power of the state. Private duties are those which exist between the individual and his creator. These are called principles of private morality. Uh, Benjamin Franklin talked a lot about this. In a sense, we could say that our inalienable duties, both public and private, are an inherited part of natural law. They contain a responsibility imposed on each individual to respect the absolute rights or the inalienable rights of others, allowing people to have what is necessary and proper to keep the Lord's commandments. And it goes back to that love one another principle that Julianne highlighted. So there, here's some examples of some public and private duties. And keep in mind that it's all based on a republic, which we are, not a democracy that's based on feelings. We're a republic that's based on rule of law, or God's law. So here are some public and private duties. The duty not to take the life of another except in self-defense. The duty not to steal or destroy the property of, of another. The duty to be honest in all transactions with others. And as I go through these and you read the Humanist Manifesto and the Communist Party platform, everything that they have is the exact opposite of what I'm going to highlight here. Number six, the duty of parents and elders to protect, teach, feed, clothe, and provide shelter for children. 
in a socialistic communist environment, it's the state or the government that wants to take that responsibility. And we see that today in our own public government schools. They're taking over the responsibility. Now kids can go get breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a school, taking that responsibility from the kid. They wanna turn the schools into parents. Number nine, the duty to provide insofar as possible for the needs of the helpless, the sick, the crippled, the injured, and poverty-stricken. Unfortunately, we have abdicated that responsibility to the government when we need to be doing those things personally, helping out and reaching to the poor and needy. That was not supposed to be a federal government or even state government assignment. 14, the duty to maintain the integrity of the family structure. And strengthening families is exactly the solution to the problems that we have today. It cures the ills of abortion. Marry the father, marry the woman, find a way to get married, gun violence, uh, suicide, all the things that we are struggling with as a society, strong families would have a lot to do with, with strengthening our children and each other. 15, the duty to perpetuate the race. We, we're beating a dead horse here in terms of abortion, but that doesn't perpetuate the race. The duty to perform civic responsibilities, to vote, assist public officials, serve in official capacities when called upon, stay informed on public issues, volunteer where needed. So the creator superior law of criminal justice is so cool as we study this. And it all involves this whole notion of reparation to the victim and it's biblical. God's revealed law provide true justice by requiring the criminal to completely restore the property he or she has stolen from someone else or to otherwise pay for the damages or the losses and what we call the law of reparation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Israelites and the Anglo-Saxons live by this law. So someone commits a robbery, the judge brings in the individual, the judge brings in the victim and says, okay, how much was stolen? He broke in my store, he took $500 worth of merchandise. Okay, young man, you're going to work off that payment. You're going to pay for that $500. And you know what? We're going to add a little, we're going to add some punitive damages of $100 on top of that to teach you a lesson and hopefully deter anyone else from doing it and also keep you from repeating that offense. Under tyranny or ruler's law, the king gets the fine when someone is convicted of a crime or a theft, but in reparations, and, and, and I wish our laws, I know Utah had adopted a law, I'm not sure they, they live by it now, but the discussion includes the possibility of the criminal, as, as I indicated, working to pay back the damages that they caused to the victim, because it really doesn't do any good unless this person is a serial uh, stealer and is dangerous and commits armed robbery, when we put those people in jail. But for white collar crimes, forcing the individual to pay back the damages to what he or she caused and keep them out of jail, but forcing them to make that person whole again is a much better way. Okay. 
Let's see. Julian, I'm going to give it back to you to talk about God's supreme law of the land. Isn't it interesting that God even weighs in on crime and how right. to bring justice to light when a crime is committed and how we veered away from God's law of dealing with criminals. Okay, so it's under the heading of God's law is the supreme law of the land. The Anglo-Saxons, remember that group of people that many believe were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that existed from about 450 AD to about 900 AD, along with the ancient Israelites looked upon the law by God as sacred and not subject to change by humans. To most Anglo-Saxons, the law was either divinely inspired or one of their ancestors of such antiquity, olden days, that it was unthinkable that they would change this people's law, this common law. Natural law constitute eternal principles. All right, John Locke talks about this. Jefferson in 1800, he wrote a letter to Benjamin Rush, who was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And um, Jefferson called the principles in the Declaration eternal principles. Okay, and he embedded that, you know, God's law, the laws of nature. He mentions God five times in the Declaration and these principles as being eternal. He writes that in this, is his letter. And actually, it's inscribed in the... Um, Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. In the oh, wow. memorial, it talks about these principles were to be eternal. So even uh, when the English Parliament began to write new statutes dealing with problems that might not have been mentioned in ancient laws, it was still required that none of these new laws were to contradict the provisions of divine law. And John Locke, that English uh, thinker and philosopher and writer, that the founders studied and wove his ideas into um, you know, the formation of the Declaration and the Constitution. He said about uh, this, these eternal principles of natural law, the law of nature, John Locke said, stands as an eternal rule to all men and legislators as well. The rules that they make for man's actions must be conformable to the laws of nature i.e. to the will of God. And Blackstone, that English judge, said, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. And he said, that is dictated. So this will of this maker is called the law of nature. And this law of nature, dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other and it is binding over all the globe in all countries and at all times and no human laws are of any validity if contrary to this okay so these were all types of men that our founders were reading and this is why you know the founders were able to do what they did in four months in the constitutional convention because they were all reading cicero and blackstone and law and mm -hmm. you know John Locke and Montesquieu and Algernon Sidney and all these and the scriptures and the scriptures. Exactly. So how can people be protected from, you know, kingly authority or, you know, small groups making all the decisions about their rights? 
where does this source of sovereign, this ultimate authority to protect our inalienable rights, these eternal principles based on godly law come from? Well, the 10th principle that fathers felt very strongly about this, the, the way that we protect these God-given rights is by the voice of the people. The voice of the people have the say. The God-given right to govern is vested in the sovereign authority, that ultimate authority of the whole people, the majority, okay? Not in the hands of a justice, not in the hands of, you know, a leader, leadership of the legislators behind closed doors, certainly not in the hands of a monarch that most people throughout history have been a product of the divine right to king. I have, I'm entitled from God to rule. It's so interesting. Al and I are watching Victoria. It's a three season. So there's about what, three, six episodes of Victoria. We've been falling asleep on it because we watch it for six hours behind. Anyways, we're having a hard time staying awake. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting to see Queen Victoria, the, the queen. She was the longest standing queen from 1837 to 1909. And 200 years earlier, they had morphed from this monarch kind of rule where, you know, they felt they governed the people by the divine rights of king. And then the glorious revolution took place. But before that, you know, to get to that point where, you know, the prime minister and parliament began to represent, you know, and confer with the queen, but she wasn't the ultimate, you know, say. She was in that living show watching she was, right? She, no, no, she, she confers because at that point. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. The, you know, the prime minister and, and she confer, but she kind of, she has a say. But um, uh, in the 1683, uh, Algernon Sidney was actually beheaded mm -hmm. for saying that, wait a minute, there's no divine right of kings to rule over people. He insisted that the right to rule is actually in the people. Therefore, no persons can rightfully rule the people without their consent. So all these ideas, as you read the declaration, these actual phrases are embedded right in the declaration. These principles here are, and, and that's one of them. So Algernon Sidney you know, the founders read him and he was beheaded for saying that. And John Locke uh, fled from England. He was a contemporary of Algernon Sidney and he fled from England to Holland because he was saying the same thing, but he said it a little bit safer distance. And John Locke would actually go on to publish, it says in your writing, in my book, at least 1890, but it was 1690. He published in these famous essays saying this, that people have the right to govern themselves by the voice of the whole people, by the majority of the people. Okay, Al, I'm going All to right, take it over to you. All right, let's talk about, so we're going to wrap it up here, the view of the American founders. So there was no place in the Constitution or the founders thinking for this notion of divine, divine right of kings. In fact, they saw public servants, pub, people serving in public office were to be servants of the people. Man, we, we really don't see that today, do we? I mean, we're almost, they feel as though they've been in office for 30, 40 years that they have gone from serving the people to us serving them and legislating by the whims of men as opposed to operating in a real republic. Yeah, we, we are really upside down from what the founders have given us, but we can put it back if we understand these principles and continue to teach principles and shore up what goes on within the four walls of our home. 
So Alexander Hamilton said that the fabric of American empire ought to rest on a solid basis of the consent of the people. In Massachusetts in 1776, it, they wrote, it is a maxim that in every government there must exist somewhere a supreme, sovereign, absolute, and uncontrollable power. But this power resides always in the body of the people, and it never was or can be delegated to one man or a few. The great creator has never given to men a right to vest others with authority, over them, unlimited either in duration or degree. So when you think about the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, meaning according to nature's law, these, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, living, and pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. So there you have what the proper role of government is. The government is there to protect our rights. And as we talked about last week, not provide equal things and all power is with the people. That's why it's so necessary that we have a moral and virtuous people so they can elect moral and virtuous leaders. That's the only way that this is going to work. And there's a pattern and a theme written through and woven in the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution, which was built upon Judeo-Christian principles and values. And so to summarize again, the inalienable rights are rights that cannot be infringed without incurring the justice of God. Inalienable rights come from God, not government. We have the inalienable right to do anything that is necessary and proper in order to keep God's commandments, and that property might rights make all other rights possible. Okay, Julian, over to you to summarize. Right. I think you were actually going to summarize, the, but that was good. That, that was, was good. the summary. That was my summary. Now <laughs> you summarize your summary. I think I think that's going to do it. So can you see that what we're <laughs> studying right now is so applicable to narr narrative and the argument that's going on about this breach uh, of the Supreme Court coming forth with this leaked document? And really, it's miraculous that Roe versus Wade is being overturned and it's going to be you know, sent back to the states. Which, and that's what the founders intended, that if the constitution doesn't address certain issues, it's to go back to the states and to the people respectively to figure it out. That's what amendments nine and 10 says, limited and carefully defined powers to the government and all others are to be determined by the states. Mm -hmm. And yes, abortion is evil and it is very contrary to God's law and, and thou shalt not kill. But nevertheless, you know, those kind of decisions were supposed to be had. And if, you know, you want to have the liberty to have an abortion, then you move to a state that legalizes it because there will be states that don't want that, you know. And so we are going to um, talk about principles 11, 12, and 13 next week that the majority of the people can 
abolish or alter, that's probably what we do in this day and age, alter a government that has become tyrannical. And how do we alter a government? Well, we vote. And, and that, that power, that God-given right is, is given to us. Therefore, the right to have fair and honest elections is a God-given right, correctly? Correct, it's a God-given right to, we can anticipate when we go and, and vote that you know, the voice of the people, the majority will prevail. And, um, and then we're going to discuss principle 12, that the United States is a republic, which a republic is a, a representative government based on self-government. And so, and the founders knew in order to have that kind of government, people needed to be abiding by natural law, God's law, the, the creator's law, you know, for, for, for us to be justified to receive the blessings of heaven and, and also to, you know, not swing too far, either too tyrannical or too much anarchy. The balance center was going to require us to have to look up and, and to base legislation and laws on God's law. And, and principle 13 will discuss how the constitution, the founders knew needed to be structured to protect the people from the human frailties of its rulers. So right now, you know, many uh, of our leaders have been saying, yeah, you have a right, governments should protect your right to abort um, you know, children. But th that is not the rule of law in the constitution. The constitution does not address that issue. It, it's to say those things, those kind of issues um, that are not in the constitution need to go back to the states and the states need to weigh their legislation, we're told, upon godly law, what we studied today and these principles. So as you, as you really ponder principles eight, nine, and 10, let that give you the basis and talking points to discuss the issue of the day right now. You know, what, what we're seeing is going on because you know those little Supreme Court justices, this leak was done by design to incite fury and chaos and put pressure on these justices to possibly change their decisions because that the opinion is not actually supposed to come out for another month to two months. So imagine the pressure now that is being felt. It's almost as if they have a draft and they've made a decision they should release it as soon as possible. Yeah, because now they, everyone knows. I saw one of the little mamas uh, that, come, that attends our class, she's the state liaison for Virginia, Tyler Atta. I saw the letter that she wrote refuting her legislator, Elmer from Virginia. And how he's saying, you know, that women have a right for abortion and that we should protect this right. And I'm, I'm like, oh, it's not a right. It's, it's not a right. So and and she wrote just a beautiful letter countering that and, and woven some of these ideas and principles that she has learned as she's come and attended the cottage meetings. But I mean, there are people. Can you see why these principles are going to be some of your best friends because they'll rise up in your hour in need when you're really being put to the test and you need to defend you know, God's law and you want to do it with strength and authority and conviction and these principles are that, you know, instead of just tit for tat going back and forth you know, in, in, in emotional argument. And so, um, okay, so that is uh, our homework is to study principles 11, 12, and 13 and to go back and reread and ponder and fill in those blanks if you didn't 
uh, principles eight, nine, and 10. So